Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the primary results are in. A roundtable of political reporters will discuss what they mean for the city and the borough, plus an ongoing effort to cultivate a billion oysters off the shores of New York City. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford. I'm joined in the studio with producer Ross Tuttle. We're going to hand the studio over to Jared Murphy of City Limits in a moment, and he's going to talk with a roundtable of local reporters about the implications of Tuesday's primary results. But first, what a night for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, I don't want to steal any of Jarrett's thunder. He's going to be talking about this, dissecting this. But yeah, pretty uh, crazy result. Although you were saying you were not surprised. I'm not surprised. I feel like I heard so much about her in the time leading up to the election. And that could just be because of the kinds of people that I surround myself with. Um, but I heard nothing about her opponent. I heard nothing about the incumbent during that time. I didn't hear anything from her. So I really assumed that she would be the person who got the vote just based on word of mouth. Right, right. And I wonder, you know, people talk a lot, about, have been talking a lot about the demographics and how the district has changed a lot, um, to being a, a large immigrant population specifically, and that maybe Crowley was a bit out of touch with that. He seemed a little out of touch, so he turned down a debate opportunity with her. He sent a surrogate. A surrogate. Well, yeah. He's uh, regretting that now. And, you know, closer to home, I mean, we should talk about Yvette Clark, who's been on the show. Just squeaked by her Mm -hmm. challenger, Adam Bunkadeko, who was also on the show, who was an interesting guy and, you know, perhaps has a political future in the party. He seemed like a real polished and real smart smart guy. I don't think this is the end for him. I think that there will still be opportunities for Mm -hmm. him. And I am actually a little surprised that Yvette's numbers were not higher. Oh, really? Or Representative Clark, that her numbers were not higher. Well, she didn't get the endorsement in the New York Times, mm, which was I interesting. Noticed. And I, want, mm. I thought that that might have been a little bit more influential. Just because I think like Crowley, who's been in there since 98, and Yvette Clark, who's been, I think, serving this and other districts as the districts have changed for uh, about a dozen plus years. Mm-hmm. You know, people are looking for some, some new blood. But I think they are. But new she blood, held on. new ideas, new thoughts, but she's still here. And, you know, I think she's open to those. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, we'll see. So, and then there was one other with uh, Siraj Patel, who tried to duplicate Ocasio's feet in Queens, mm-hmm. but he lost fairly handily to Caroline Maloney. He did. But with some of the positions that he was taking, especially pro-sex worker, I am actually quite surprised that he did as well as he did. Hmm. I am... A lot of the positions that he took, I agree with, but I thought there's like this is a person who might make it on the ballot, but <laughs> I don't yeah. know if they're gonna. Yeah, like Ocasio, he was also calling for, for getting rid of ICE. Yes. I don't know if that was one of the issues that worked for her. I think there were a lot of issues working for her. I think yeah. she's a, she's a great candidate. I think so too. I wonder also if she being a she what played into that with a lot of women, you know, coming in and running for office this term, this time around, I wonder if I mean, yeah, there's a lot of support for women who want to run for office um, and a lot of more vocal support and a lot of more resources being shared, you know. One of the things that I always keep in mind is that women's leadership style is a lot more cooperative in general. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, every once in a while, I'm like, these men are going to beat each other senseless, you know, whatever, but women are going to sneak in and just take over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we turn it over to the experts? Absolutely. Okay. In just a moment, Jarrett Murphy and his post-primary wrap-up. 
Sometimes political reporters have to strain to find a decent story in election results. That's not the case in the aftermath of this week's federal primaries for congressional seats. Six sitting members of Congress in the city faced challengers. A couple, Greg Meeks in the Queens and Elliot Engel in the Bronx, glided to wins over multiple opponents. Three others representing parts of Brooklyn, Republican Dan Donovan, Democrats Yvette Clark and Carolyn Maloney, had competitive races. But the shocker of the night, of course, was the defeat by a substantial margin of Queens Democratic Chair Joe Crowley, once seen as a possible House Speaker, by a 28-year-old socialist named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Here to talk about what we've learned from Tuesday's races are two Brooklyn journalists, Vanya Andre, editor of the Haitian Times. Welcome to the show, Vanya. And Julianne Cuba, reporter for the Brooklyn Paper and Brooklyn Daily. Welcome back. So we're going to get to the Crowley race, which we all want to talk about soon. But let's start with the race I know you guys have covered, the Yvette Clark-Adam uh, Bunkadeko race. What was Bunkadeko's argument against Clark? Was this about ideology? Was this about competence? What was the thread? I think the biggest threat was just the overall record and the effectiveness that some have perceived or that she has or hasn't had in the community. Um, for example, in the, in the Times article that endorsed them, they made sure to point out that she hasn't been a single sponsor, primary sponsor on um, any major legislation for the past several years. I think for him, it wasn't necessarily more an idea um, that she wasn't competent as far as ideology, but just a level of effectiveness and more action that was needed in the community, especially in this current administration. Juliana, are you surprised by how close it was? It was a relatively tight race. About 1,100 votes separate them, at least at this point, out of 29,000 cast. Yeah, I mean, I did not expect the numbers to be that close. Um, I think a lot of, I guess, the media voters in general kind of don't put as much... Um, don't think that the challengers will do as well. And I think in this situation, he really came out of nowhere and had some really great numbers. Do you see a future for him in the district? Is this a warning shot for, no, for Clark? No, defi definitely. Even though Clark won yesterday, it's still kind of, of a loss for her, I see, to be honest. I mean, the fact that she's been in office for so long and someone who's fairly new Brooklyn scene was able to get so close to winning, I think it's really indicative of kind of what the voters want. And they want representatives that are more active. They want representatives that are 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 more aggressive as far as their approach and not willing just to, you know, toe the middle line. Like, they want people that are going to be able to go head-to-head -head with the Republican Party, especially now because it's, in, it's a dire time and we have a lot that we need to change in a short amount of time. So this is the district that we're talking about for those people watching who don't have the electoral map emblazoned in their head. This is uh, Crown Heights, Prospect, Lefferts Gardens, mm -hmm. sort of central Brooklyn area. Moving up to Greenpoint, which is the edge of the 12th district where Carolyn Maloney is the incumbent, she also had an interesting race against uh, an insurgent candidate, and that wasn't as close, but it seemed fairly competitive. Yeah, he took, he actually used a very unique campaign. Siraj Patel, yes. who was on the show recently, yeah. Um, a very unique campaigning tactic that actually got some criticism. It was called Tinder banking, um, where he would set up fake dating profiles on dating apps to try and get to talk about his campaign and get young voters involved and try and, I guess, get their vote in that way. But it, it was criticized. I guess some called it catfishing. It was interesting. An interesting tactic. But people knew that's what he was up to, right? No one yeah, was Yeah, he, he wasn't signing deceiving up anyone. Date. Yeah, I mean, I didn't stumble upon it, but <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he was upfront about it. And he also spent a significant amount of money, I think, 
like $5,000 on it, which I don't know, I mean, for other campaigning tactics. I'm curious, you guys are closer to the ground here certainly than I am. One of the questions with any of these sets of results is how many people were paying attention to this race? How indicative are these results of what people actually feel? Were people generally engaged in the primary, or is this like a super secret thing that only real political nerds paid attention to? I think it's not as closely paid attention to as the New York City local primaries or even state primaries. I mean, the voter turnout, like, I think there's 700,000 people in a congressional district, and the most was maybe 28,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really nothing. And, I mean, I'm young like my friends. I don't know if they really pay attention to these types of elections. So the elections were for the most part on the Democratic side. The one district that had primaries in both parties was the 11th. This is the Staten Island and a little bit of Brooklyn district where Dan Donovan mm -hmm. is the incumbent and right now remains the Republican nominee. Surprised by the fact that he beat Grimm by as much as he did, given all the attention Grimm got? No, not necessarily. I really feel that Republicans, they do a really good job I don't want to say necessarily playing to their base, but understanding what they want. And I think that there was a real fear that if Grimm did win, it wasn't going to go much further than that. And I think they played on that, and that was really what I, what I predicted, and I'm not surprised. The Democratic nominee, Max Rose, uh, is the person that I guess was expected to win. He had the most mm -hmm. money, most media contacts. We assume that he probably wanted to run against Michael Grimm because that's a better <laughs> opponent, easier. right? Probably easier. This is one of those seats that the Democrats hope to flip red to blue for control of the of the House. Mm -hmm. Do you think Rose has a shot against Donovan? What do you see happening in that district? I think it's going to be a, a very tough campaign for Max Rose, considering that it encompasses Staten Island. It's going to be more difficult. It was just Bay Ridge. I know that some Bay Ridgeites feel very frustrated that that district encompasses Staten Island, which tends to vote much more conservatively than Brooklyn, um, taking into account that Staten Island has more voters in that district. I think it's going to be tough. His veteran status is something Rose has played up in his advertisements. Do you think that's a, is that a powerful argument for him in the district? I think it always helps. Um, to be honest, it, it Unless there's something that he's done egregious, I think having that status is always going to be helpful unless the other person's able to play up another part of it. So now let's talk about the race none of us covered, but we're all really <laughs> interested in, which is the Joe Crowley defeat. Is this a one-off of one district and one candidate who kind of caught lightning, or does this tell us something larger about what's going on this year? Julianne, I want to hear you on this first. I think that this is hopefully telling us something larger, that we have to really listen to the young to young voters, young people running to try and make a difference. Um, you know, Joe Crowley was like just an entrenched politician with so much political sway in, in New York City. And this is, I think a lot of people are going to use this momentum now. And also, I think she just sort of worked harder, right? I mean, she was uh, out there in the district. She yeah. was good on direct mail. And she showed up for debates that had to have some impact, right? Yes, for sure. I mean, this is a great example of a grassroots campaign that went well. The biggest takeaway I have from this is that the Bernie supporters never went away. Um, this is really a reflection of the changing face of the party. And again, I really feel strongly that the voters want representatives that are going to be able to go head-to-head -head with 
some of the more right-leaning conservative members of government instead of leaning towards representatives that want to walk down this safe middle line. Like, that's, that's not the time that we're in right now. They're going hard on the right, we need to go hard on the left, and this race showed that's what they wanted. One thing I wonder is, you know, Joe Crowley, with a last name like Crowley, 10, 20 years ago, that probably played a lot better in that district than now. I mean, all these districts are changing their ethnic composition. Mm -hmm. That's probably part of it, too, and I guess that could fit into some of the Brooklyn races we've talked about, right? I mean, the city's changing, and these ethnic alliances, to the extent that they matter, are going to change, too. Yes, for sure. Again, going back to the Clark race, you know, this is someone who's been in that seat for several years. And again, you know, five, ten years ago, that meant a lot. But for people who were in my generation to see someone like Adam that came so close, that was really on the ground, I mean, I got a Facebook friend request from him. I know several of, of my friends did. It's really indicative of this changing time and, and this, this want to have people who are a little bit more representative of what you look like and kind of understand like what you're going through and the fact that you know Miss Cortez is a millennial Adam is a millennial and he came so close to kind of unseating you know I want to say more legacy more establishment reps it's, it's really something that's it's astonishing to me and I'm definitely going to be watching so Julianne I'm curious the next date on the calendar is September 13th the state mm -hmm. primary and you have several interesting races there where if you look at them from 15,000 feet, share a lot with some of the races we're talking about now. You have Cynthia Nixon challenging Governor Cuomo. You have the primaries where former IDC members are located. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any of what we've witnessed over the past 36 hours translating into that? Do you think entrenched candidates in those races are sort of alert to uh, the, the Joe Crowley effect? Yeah, definitely. I think in those districts that you mentioned, Zahnar Myrie, he's challenging a former IDC member. I think people... Jesse Hamilton for those. Right. I think that he is going to pick up a lot of support. You know, people who have put faith in the fact that now Ms. Cortez won, I guess really go do some grassroots campaigning to try and get those candidates to oust the, the incumbent in this situation. And I think in Bushwick, if I forget her first name, Ms. Salazar, challenging... I think Senator DeLon, also kind of democratic socialist, I think we're going to see a big movement in the state in the state and local elections. On the local level, what are the issues that people will talk about? Nationally, obviously, immigration has dominated the past few, few weeks and perhaps longer. What are the issues on the state level that divide Democrats from left to center, do you think? Hmm. I don't think it's necessarily the issues, but maybe the approach on how to handle them. I know for us, you know, over at the Haitian Times, we're very focused clearly what the Haitian community cares about, and a lot of it is still immigration, TPS issues, housing affordability is, is really important. And within specifically in housing, there are different approaches that you can take on how you make sure that a family can be able to live on an income here and be able to have quality and decent living. And I think those are some of the main things that people are paying attention to. It's not necessarily the issues. I think kind of the issues are all, we all fall in like this gray area, but it's how you go about it. So I'm curious, we're all journalists who cover politics, and one of the kind of interior storylines today is why was nobody covering this Crowley race or these other races as much as they should have to see this earthquake coming? How do you decide whether to cover a race or not when it's time to give a challenger his or her due versus not devoting ink to something that's not a real contest. How do you approach that? 
I mean, I guess it's actually tough. I think we all have to think about it too as journalists, like how much credence we give to candidates. If someone's just out there campaigning on Twitter, I know there was a candidate said that they were running, but then never actually followed through with it. And there was like an article about it and they were very anti-Muslim. And so, you know, you have to be very careful about the types of platforms that you give to candidates and really make sure that they're actually running and not just looking for for a chance to air some grievances or something. But it's definitely something that journalists have to think more about. And think about and talk about. Well, Julianne, Vania, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be looking at the September primaries and hopefully having you back on. New York City has a rich history when it comes to oysters. That's right. In the harbor, there were once huge reefs, which apparently contained half the world's oyster population. Ellis Island used to be named Great Oyster Island. Liberty Island? Little Oyster Island. And New York shipped more oysters abroad than any other American port. Now, those reefs have all but disappeared. But some groups are trying to bring oysters back, including the Billion Oyster Project. And we have its executive director, Pete Melanowski, who arrived by ferry from Governor's Island to tell us about this bivalve and its importance to New York and our waterways. Thanks for coming on the show, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. So, first of all, first of all, can you make the case for oysters? Because I found, you know, first of all, let's say this. I tried my first oyster a year and a half ago personally, and that's eating oysters. But every time I talk to other people who haven't had oysters about them, the first thing they do is this. Like, they're worried about them, and they're like, ooh, I don't know, what about the texture, what about this, you know? And I think a lot of people only think about oysters in terms of food. Like, we don't actually think about what they do, right? Right, absolutely. Um, I, I love eating oysters. The yes. uh, um, some, it's definitely an acquired taste, and I think you have to have a few of them before you really start to appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Cool thing about oysters is that you get a little piece of the place where the oyster grew up, and it's mm-hmm. packaged there and brought to you. So when you try an oyster from eastern Long Island or from Maine or from the West Coast or anywhere, you're sampling that ecosystem a little bit. And just how wine, the flavor of wine, is determined by the place it's grown and the minerals in the soil, oysters are the same way. So you right. get to experience that place a little bit. That's why I try to sell oysters. That makes a lot of sense, but I guess, like... If we're losing them, especially in New York, does that mean we're losing a kind of oyster or a certain flavor of oyster? Uh, Most of the oysters on the East Coast are the same species. Oh, great. So we're not losing that species, but you are losing, we have lost varieties, right? Right. So 90% of oyster reefs in the world have been destroyed by humans. They've been eaten. Right. And so it's the most impacted marine ecosystem. Right. Yeah. So talk to me a lot more about that, what they do for the ecosystem, because I think that's what people are missing. Right. So you can think of oyster reefs just like coral reefs, right? The oysters provide the habitat. They filter the water. They provide food for other animals. Through their feeding, they capture phytoplankton that's floating in the water, package it, and put it on the bottom where other animals can access it. So an oyster reef is a center for biodiversity, just like a coral reef or a forest or you know, mangroves or salt marsh, any of those ecosystems that people normally associate with, uh, you know, being important for the environment. Talk to me a little bit more about New York and its relationship to oysters. Well, originally, you know, it's the town that the oyster built. You know, when explorers first arrived, there were, as you said, hundreds of square miles of oyster reef. They were the mm-hmm. primary navigational hazard, and they supported a rich and dynamic ecosystem. So one of the reasons that 
people settled, you know, Europeans settled in, in New York City is because of the abundance of food. Right. There were so many fish that sailors could catch them just by lowering a basket over the side of the boat and bringing it back up. Right. So the harbor was actually literally oh. full of fish. And the oyster reefs supported that whole ecosystem. Now you talked a little bit about them being a really natural and important part of our ecosystem. But there's also something to do with the lime as a building material, right? Like, I mean, oysters being, you know, building New York, it's like they literally built New York. Right. Um, and that was one of the big problems for the population is that the mm. shells weren't returned to the harbor. And the shells are... The shells in the reef themselves are part of the oyster life cycle, so when they were removed and used as an additive for cement to pave streets and build buildings, that made it a lot harder for the population to keep up with the harvesting. Right. And now these reefs haven't disappeared, right? Or have they? Most of the wild oysters were gone from New York City by the early 1800s. So right. it was pretty quickly all that harvesting that you m mentioned. You know, we just wiped them out. Wiped them out. <laughs> So they're gone That's um, from the harbor mostly, but there are still some oyster reefs left in the harbor. Okay. Um, up by the Tappan Zee Bridge, there are some right. thriving oyster reefs, and, um, and you see wild populations in Flushing Bay at the mm -hmm. mouth of the Bronx River. And even in the Gowanus Canal in Newtown Creek, there are oysters, the most polluted water bodies in the city. Right. Um, so they're around. They're just you know, very few and far between. Right. You know, I think somebody looks at Billion Oyster Project and they think, yes. I am happy to eat a billion oysters. <laughs> like, that's what they think first. Right. But what is it that you guys actually do? Because it's not eating a billion oysters, right? And none of our oysters are technically edible. So exactly. you can't harvest oysters from New York Harbor because the water right. is not clean enough for, to, uh, to eat the oysters. So our oysters yeah. are restored strictly for the environmental benefit they provide right. and for the cultural benefit, right? What we're trying to do is change the relationship that New York City has with its natural resource. Mm. We think that the harbor should be seen not just as a system of waste conveyance, mm. but actually an important natural resource, the city's you know, most important open space that's right. used by everybody, and, and it's seen more as a place of value instead of a place we sort of turn our backs on. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges that you have to doing that work? One interesting challenge is that most, most people I talk to who live in New York City don't identify as living in a port city or living on the water, even though most streets in New York end at the water's edge, right. and most people travel under the water to right. come to work every day <laughs> right. or over the water. It's not part of the culture. If you right. grew up on the Chesapeake Bay or somewhere where, you, where the communities still have that connection with the resource, it's a much different relationship. Right. So is it true that you should only eat oysters in months with an R? There's, there's two reasons for that thing. <laughs> One, <laughs> what do you mean by thing? Is it a myth or is it a myth? I don't know what to call it. Because there's, yeah. some, there's, some there's some reasons for it and there's some, there's some good reasons for it and there's some bad reasons right. for it. So originally oysters were packed into barrels and put on trains and ships mm -hmm. and shipped all over the world. And they would spoil if it was warm. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing. In the warm months, they don't keep as long. Um, oysters also reproduce during the warm months, mm. and they do that by they produce a lot of either eggs or sperm and release it into the water. But mm -hmm. so right bef as they're getting ready to spawn, a significant amount of their body mass is is devoted to the production of gametes. So you'll right. see. So th that's what you're eating if you're eating an oyster at that time. Mm -hmm. And then after they spawn, the meats will be thin, and it makes sense to leave them alone while they're spawning and maybe not eat them. Right. But those spawning times are different depending on where you get your oysters from. So if right. you're a thoughtful consumer and you avoid the spawning periods, you can 
strategically eat oysters all year without worrying about that. Mm, <laughs> I like that actually, being a little bit more strategic with my oyster eating <laughs> now that I have more info. Um, one of the things that you encourage people to do is to save and donate their shells. Can you say why that's so important? Uh, the oyster life cycle starts when the re release egg and sperm into the water, fertilization happens, and then oyster larvae swim around for two weeks. Mm -hmm. Just And just like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, the free-swimming oyster larvae turns into a oyster that you're more used to seeing. Right. And to go through metamorphosis, they need an object to attach to. And their preferred substrate is oyster shells. And on a reef, that makes sense, because then the young oysters land um, on the reef at a, in a place where oysters can thrive. Right. But what's happened in the harbor and so many other places is that all of the shells have been removed. So we operate a shell collection program in mm -hmm. partnership with the Lobster Place, which is a seafood distributor. Ooh. And we collect 6,000 pounds of shell a week Mm -hmm. from about 70 restaurants in Brooklyn and Manhattan. That's how we get most of our shell. So we've, to date, collected almost a million pounds of shell. A um, million pounds a million of pounds. shell. And that's all shell that would have gone, you know, get got, put in black plastic bags, thrown in the back of trucks, and driven to West Virginia and North Carolina to be put in landfills. And it's an important resource for us in our restoration work, so we're very happy to get it out of the waste stream. So when do we want to <laughs> have a billion oysters by? Our goal is 2035. Mm -hmm. The way that we do our restoration work is through public education initiatives. So we work most closely with the Harbor School, which is a public high school on Governor's Island, and we work with about 100 other middle and high schools all over the city. Mm -hmm. And Harbor School students do the work of restoring oysters. So yeah. we realized early on that there was a match between the skills that Harbor School students are learning in their classes mm -hmm. and the professions that we needed or the expertise that we needed to restore oysters. Right. So Harbor School students are learning to scuba dive and the scuba divers put our oysters underwater. They're learning to grow oysters and they grow the oysters for the project, learning wow. to drive boats, design underwater reef structures, do the welding. And so the students really collaborate in a really neat way at a very high level to to plan the projects and implement the projects. Wow. And Man, this is, a, this is like really deeply interesting work. <laughs> and it's like, and I bet people ask you all the time, like, oh, oysters. And they have no idea. Yeah. But I'm hoping that they get a better idea after either watching or listening to this or visiting your website. Yep, billionoysterproject.org. Okay. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Peter. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about city education and the proposal to change the acceptance process for specialized high schools. And then rum and some summer-inspired drinks. I'm very excited about that. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>